1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we now know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put, away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Oh, thank you. Let me just begin with a quick prayer. Holy Spirit, help us to receive those words of Scripture as we should. Be in the words that I am about to speak be in the hearts of those who hear them. Work through this time of teaching to bring glory to God our Father and a blessing to our lives. Amen. So love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And as Dave said, that is one of those passages of Scripture that basically everyone has heard uh, probably quite a few times before. Even if you're not a churchgoer, you will have heard 1 Corinthians 13. You just have to go to a couple weddings, most likely, and it'll pop up in there. Right? It is the love chapter. But I think there's actually a bit of a problem with the close association with weddings that this chapter has, because, I mean, the problem is that this chapter is, in fact, not about weddings or marriage at all. Love is, of course, relevant to marriage, as it's relevant to all relationships. But the relationship that this is written about is not between husband and wife or even between parent and child, but between brothers and sisters in Christ. This is about the church. And I think that is a problem to connect this too closely to marriage because it creates this impression that there is this unique and highest form of love that is only meant to exist between spouses. And that's, that's really not correct. There is, of course, a special level of intimacy within marriage, but that doesn't mean the love you share with others is lesser in its nature. The, the biblical standard for love is a very high one, and it applies to all relationships. 
So building on what we've been learning as we've worked through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, for the last well, six or seven weeks now, we're going to keep exploring the, the nature of this love that Paul wants to see practiced in this particular church and what that might say to us and how we love the people around us in our lives and in our particular church. So just to begin, it's helpful that we remember that, you know, those verse and chapter numbers in your Bible, they're, they're not original. They were added later for convenience. And so the Apostle Paul did not write this letter to the Corinthians with 16 ch chapters covering 16 distinct topics. He just wrote what he wanted to write based on what the people he trusted in that church were telling him about what was going on. So there's no break between chapter 12, which we studied last week, and chapter 13, which we're working on now. He's still addressing this problem that Corinth has where there are people who greatly value these charismatic gifts of so speaking in tongues and prophecy and, and miracles and things. And uh, some people are really excited about those and they're undervaluing other gifts and forms of service. It's leading to pride and division. And so that's important context when we get to the beginning of this. And it says, if I speak in tongues of men or angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So he's laying out again, this time in perhaps more poetic terms, to tell the Corinthians that, look, your, your charismatic gifts that you're so excited about, that's just noise without love. Mighty faith does not make you a big shot. And you could be so self-sacrificing that, you know, you could put Mother Teresa to shame with your selflessness. And then if you boast about that because you think it's righteous behavior, then that's worth nothing. It does you no good. All of this works against the health of the body of Christ where each part belongs to the others and needs the others in order to serve the common good. It's basically the body of Christ works about as well without love as your body does without blood. There's, it's not just those spiritual gifts that are relevant here. The other divisive issues in Corinth that we studied, you can really connect them all to this. It's not that hard. It says love is patient. And the word used here means the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. That's the, what that word for patience means. So love is about being able to absorb a certain amount of hurt and continue to be kind. Unlike those Corinthian Christians, some of whom were actually suing each other in uh, government courts because of disputes they had within the church. We didn't do a whole lot about that one in this series, but that's in chapter 6. Love doesn't envy, not when in community with those who are wealthier, those who have certain gifts or knowledge that you don't. And those people who have those things do not boast and become prideful because they have love for their brothers and sisters. We saw back in chapter 8 and 9 about there was this issue with meat being sacrificed to idols. And Paul said, love comes before my rights. He says, even though I'm correct about eating this meat, it's not actually a problem. But he says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. He says, you know, there's nothing wrong with this meat, but I'll become a vegetarian before I will, you know, let it be a problem for my brother or sister. Love comes ahead of my rights. Love does not dishonor others. Like sending the poor members away hungry who were ho when, and hoarding food that we saw in chapter 11. Love is not self-seeking. Like some of those who were trying to promote their preferred faction and favored leader back in chapter 1. Love is not easily angered. Not that love does not become angry. It 
doesn't say that. It says love is not easily angered. There are lots of things in this world worth being angry about, but love tempers anger. And when our response comes to whatever's made us angry, love makes sure that it's not built on punishing someone because of things they've done or the ways they've sinned in the past, because love keeps no record of wrongs. It seeks the good of the other without regard for any difficult history. What else? Love does not delight in evil. Right? The, the Corinthian Christians had that man who had shacked up with his mother-in-law back in chapter 5. That's not, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth, the truth that God has given us rules and commands that are meant to set us apart from this world and keep us from sin, and we should not ignore these. Love always protects and always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres. Love never fails. So when the going gets tough, love doesn't quit. It keeps working for the good of the other. And if you're going to invest time and effort into something, then choose the thing that lasts. And the, among, among those things, the very first thing, that's the most important thing that does not fade away, Paul says, is love. Because where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. But now these th three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Right? The spiritual gifts will one day cease. One day we will not need faith because we will live with God in his new creation. And then hope will not be required because our hopes will have been fulfilled. But love will still matter just as much. It is the greatest of these. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, well, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So the Corinthians, they prided themselves on knowledge, they, but they only had partial knowledge. And all their pride, all their divisiveness, all their squabbling showed that in fact they were still reasoning like children. Becoming mature, putting the ways of childhood behind them, involved learning to care about what matters most. And what matters most, says Paul here, is love. And 1 John 4, 7 and 9 sums up well. When it says, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. <clears throat> and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So I don't think many people read 1 Corinthians 13 and strongly disagree with it. Right? No one hears that and says, no, that sounds terrible to me. Right? There's not a lot of people who are anti-love in this world. We like love, but we don't all understand it the same way. And our vocabulary might need a little bit of work here. Because just by living in our culture, just by absorbing the media around us or the, the attitudes around us, our view of what love is can get distorted. Because love in our culture is often a word used to describe a sentimental feeling or a passing enjoyment. As, and as our feelings change, at least this is the way of the world today, like if your feelings change, then you should be free to drop everything, pursue something new. And because love is really about my personal fulfillment. That's kind of the, the attitude of this age. And the Bible tells a very different story to us. Even if we go all the way back, and we studied this not that long ago in Exodus 34, which tells us you know, when God... We were first given the attributes of God to say, this is who he God is. 
It says God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with love and faithfulness. And the word love here, if you like Hebrew words, it's the word kesed, and it, it means loyal love. That's one way of translating it. And this love is not conditional. It's not based on what anybody else has done or what they can give you. And if there are a few people in the Bible who are able to show this loyal love, who are credited with having that same kind of love, like Ruth, Ruth who keeps her promise to stick with her mother-in-law Naomi through thick and thin. But the giver of loyal love in the Bible is almost always God. And, you know, if there's, even if you go back to the story of the, the patriarch Jacob, who recognized that God, he didn't deserve God's love. He'd been a schemer, he'd been cheating people. And so he prays, I am not worthy of all this love you've shown me, because he recognizes that God's still been loving him all the way through. And it was true, he didn't deserve it. But it's not about Jacob or about anybody else being worthy. It is about God keeping his promises. And God defeats Egypt and he, <coughs> he liberates his people from slavery for the very same reason. God keeps his word in an act of loyal love. And then God forgives their rebellion not long afterward when Moses pleads with God to show mercy on his people because his un, not because the unfaithful people deserve it, but because that is who God is, loyal and loving. But of course, our love for God generally doesn't rise to that level. Israel's love for God, according to the prophet Hosea, was a morning mist that is here one moment and gone the next. But God's love, as Psalm 36 says again and again and again to us, his love endures forever. Or Isaiah 54.10 says that though the mountains be shaken and the, the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So God then keeps his promise in the most dramatic and costly way of all by becoming human, by binding himself to humanity in the person of Jesus and willingly giving his life on behalf of everyone, even those who put him to death. And so Jesus was the ultimate loyal, loving human. You know, the pages of the gospel show us this through his interactions with people and through the cross. His teachings challenged people to love with a loyal, godly love that went beyond what they'd ever been taught before, what they ever even thought was possible. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. Love your neighbor as yourself. A new command I give you. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And Jesus invites us to know him and to follow him, and, to, and he responds to our faith by giving us new life. And this new life is joined to him through the Holy Spirit. And so when we live in faithfulness to God, then the, the purity of his loyal love can flow through us. It compels us to love God in return and the people around us. When you know you're loved by God, his love comes flowing back out of you. In the New Testament, when the love of God is described, it uses a different word that more people are probably familiar with, which is agape, which is a word that captures the notion of this unconditional and benevolent love, rather than simple affection, because Greek has about four different words that can mean love. And so, but when we read 1 Corinthians 13, the word used every single time is that agape love. And so it's not about being in love, but it's about being a community committed to seeking each other's good 
even when it's costly. It's not sweet, it's not romantic in this case. Frankly, what's described is difficult and daunting. The bar is set high. Without God's grace, in fact, it is not possible at all. But it is also beautiful, and it is well worth aspiring to. This is the kind of love that our world needs so much more of. I mean, how many of the troubles and tragedies of our world could be solved very quickly if people promised to put the good of others first and actually kept that promise? Godly love would banish war and famine and poverty if humanity would receive and share it. And the church is one of the places, if not the primary place, that God has given us in order to learn and cultivate this love. The church should be like a, a greenhouse, right? It's an environment created with care where this kind of godly and loyal love can grow so that it can then be spread through the world. Or another good way of thinking of it, I was visiting uh, the new building of what was First Baptist Dartmouth uh, yesterday, and they had a big sign on their you know, wall hanging, covering a whole wall, explaining the why of church. And one of, the, one of the statements in there said that we are an apprenticeship of love. That was one way of describing what church community was for them. We are an apprenticeship of love, learning those skills, hoping to, to master it, but knowing that you know, we're not going to reach the level of our master but that he'll help us along our way. All right, so what should that look like? We'll try to get practical a little bit here, because as a follower of Jesus, as a member of a church, how do I or how do any of us love well? And to try to give some application in the context of this chapter, in this book, well, in some ways that's a bit tricky, because I would not say that Faith Baptist Church has the identical issues as church in Corinth, right? There's not a lot of people suing each other or getting involved in incest or forming angry factions or worshiping, you know, idols in temples, pagan temples, or hoarding food at the potluck or thumbing their nose at people with different gifts and roles within the church. Not a, not a whole lot of that going on, which I'm very pleased about. <laughs> so what would Paul write to us about, right? What would the letter of First Sacvillians say about our possible shortcomings of, or those of, you know, the, the church in, in our place and time. And he could say a lot of things, potentially. He could say, I have heard that there are some among you being discipled more by Facebook and TV and internet personalities than by your own study of the scriptures and the teaching of gifted people within your own church. Or maybe he would say, I've heard, among, or heard, it's, heard that among you there are people who are duped by conspiracy theories or have given themselves over to political ideologies that sound, use Christian language, but are clearly not loving? Can you not find something more profitable to do than stare at screens all the time? I have heard that some among you act like pagans who devour beauty and indulge in pornography and hold no sexual ethic beyond consent like the world around you. I have heard that some among you have the resources to buy many of those things advertised to you each day, but little left over to give to the spiritual and physical needs of those around you. I have heard that some among you cannot imagine telling someone else about the good that Jesus has done for you. Some of you cannot even work up the nerve to invite someone to an event at your church. Right? That's, that's probably a lot more that Paul could write to the Sackvillians, and he, Paul would probably be a lot tougher than me, so better that you have me, I guess. But... But just as Corinth had many issues that were ultimately best addressed by love, this has to be our starting place too. Because as I 
kind of got into before, I believe that one of the reasons God has established the church at all and made us part of the body of Christ is to grow our love. Belonging to a local church puts us in contact with a diverse group of people, different ages, different life experiences, different economic realities, different uh, backgrounds, sometimes even ethnicities and languages, different beliefs and opinions on matter of, matters of faith and how to live that out. And when that happens, there is friction. And people make mistakes, too, that cause sometimes frustrations and hurt. And Christians are called to join themselves to sometimes messy communities like this and choose to love those people, not because of what we gain, although I think we gain a lot, but because that is what God asked us to do. And I believe that we're asked to do this as part of maturing in our faith. It's a way we learn to put childish things behind us as we serve the good of the other beyond our immediate family, where we should also do these things, but it's more expected. And at times, of course, that means sacrificing our, our preferences for the benefits of others, for the benefit of noisy kids or traditionalists who like things a certain way, or from those who are starting from scratch in their knowledge of the Bible and church life and just don't know how any of this is supposed to work. Being in church community also creates opportunities for us to work together, to use those gifts and talents as we talked about last Sunday with the body of Christ. But that also means making allowances for different sets of skills, different approaches, different styles of working about how to move toward what should be our shared goal for Jesus' sake and furthering his kingdom. <clears throat> and being in church community also means weathering storms together. When our commitment is to love one another, that gets put to the test. When there is conflict over church business or personal relationship breakdowns or disappointment or disillusionment, what then? Will we stick together, growing in love, depending on God for the grace needed to bring about restoration and reconciliation? Or will we disengage and withdraw and maybe start over somewhere else that, that looks better because we just don't know about their struggles and problems and flaws yet? Now in Corinth, there weren't other options. There was just one church community, so they either had to make that work or they had to have no church community. Today, of course, we have lots of options, and now online pandemic stuff has kind of normalized virtual attendance too, so you can absorb all kinds of church from all kinds of places without ever having to actually risk being exposed to people. So maybe Paul would write to us and ask, are you serious about the body of Christ? I have heard reports from some Christians that in your town, church is just a place you show up from time to time, hoping that it does you some good, and not a place God has called you to truly make your spiritual community as part of the larger body. And listen, I, I don't want to say any of this to shame anyone who struggles with church, because there are a lot of people who have at some time been wounded or abused or rejected in the past, and so it's, it's not gracious to ignore that when inviting people to lay their time and their resources and their passion at God's feet as part of a local church community. That would be our, our desire, but sometimes there's healing and time and other things needed to get there again. There are absolutely valid reasons to walk away from individual churches, and sometimes that's a hard road back. And so we have to be gracious in our world. There are lots of people who are nuns who've never been to church, but there are also lots of people not in churches who are called duns. They've been there, they've done that, and they have reasons they don't want to go back right now. But I do want to push back against our culture's influence that would say to us that the that church is about fulfilling our desires. It's about meeting our needs as we understand them. And 
Therefore, we should just get going if the going gets tough. Can you find that in the Bible? No. God chooses to use community to help grow us, help mature us as his followers. We should have a place where we deepen relationships, where we work together on things that matter to God, and where our love is tested so that it can triumph. That is a serious and a sacred thing, and it's one that deserves our wholehearted commitment and not just our occasional presence. I think an unintended consequence was created when Christians started talking about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's kind of an evangelical catchphrase, I guess, to some extent. And it's not a bad phrase, right? We do want people to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to seek to know Christ, to study scripture, to spend time in prayer, to give careful thought and consideration to what they believe and how they live that out, you know, as an individual. There's a pretty important difference between someone who calls themselves a Christian in that way and someone who calls themselves a Christian because, you know, as an infant they were baptized 40 years ago or because their grandparents were Catholic or or something like that, you know, a cultural form of, of Christianity. The trouble, though, with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is that some Christians think that they can just be free agents, that you can be unattached from the teaching and the tradition and the accountability and the support of the wider church, or at least some branch of it. And that makes it easy to opt out of this love, which is the greatest among those big three things that will remain, faith, hope, and love. Because this love is lived and grown in community, where we commit to each other, where we seek to be patient and kind and not envy or boast. And because we're trying to love Jesus back for all that he's done for us, then we love others by not dishonoring them, by not being self-seeking or easily angered, keeping no record of wrongs, knowing that, that Jesus doesn't for us. In order to be more mature in our Christian character, we do not delight in evil, but we rejoice in the truth. Even when that truth is hard to hear, even when it conflicts with something in our life that you know, we, we don't want to touch, we don't want to give up. May we always protect, always trust, always hope, and always persevere together. And we have the assurance of God's word that love is never the wrong answer, that love never fails. So the next time you hear 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding, or you read it on somebody's decorative item in their house, or wherever else you come across it, remember that this is is not romantic love or parental love, although you can learn lessons for those things. But this is church love. And a very messy church was the original audience for these words. But we don't need that teaching any less than they did. Because the church today, all churches, are still messy at times. And this world is very complicated. And we are still called to be people set apart for God in the midst of it. So, if we need to grow up and put childish things behind us, then let's get on with it. And if we need to raise our expectations for ourselves in order to create a community that would make Jesus proud, then it's past time to do that. Jonathan Swift, who was the author of Gulliver's Gulliver's Travels, once said that we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. And in this wider world, I see too much evidence of this being true. So may we be a community of faith that defies that trend and lives as light in the darkness, first and foremost, through our love. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. To join me in a short word of prayer.
Father God, these, these words that are familiar, this concept that we all agree with, we still need to come back to it because we can let other things crowd it out. We can decide that, well, yeah, love's important, but, and it's, that's never okay. We can't put a but in there. Help us to learn from your love, the example of your love, your loyal love for us, the sacrificial love of your son, Jesus. Lord God, make that always our standard in marriage, in parenting, in church community, and with all those that we come across, all those who are made in the image of God and who are perfectly and wonderfully loved by you. Lord God, help us not to dishonor you by being unwilling to love those children who are beloved to you. And so God, if there are ways that we need to love each other better here, reveal those to us through your Holy Spirit. If there are ways that we need to be more serious about being part of the body, so that we can give ourselves to this in a way that allows our love to grow and mature and so that we do not get stuck in childish ways, then help reveal those to us, Lord God, so that we can be the parts of your body that we are meant to be, that we were created to be, so that we can grow in the image of your son, Jesus Christ, as you intend us to be. And God, I thank you for the hope that we have that says that one day that will be so, one day that we will be perfected, one day we will live in fullness the way we ought to be, where love prevails, having triumphed over all things. I give you thanks for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.